0: You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. You are now entering Europa. The grass moves on the mass graves. How many divisions has the grass at this discreet perpetual exercise? The fallen leaves are frozen now. The wind falls bitter. No one writes and I forget. I mark the days. The grass moves on the mass graves. I tell myself I have my work, when what I have is paper and a clock. The grass is in the street. The street is at the door. I may not be disturbed, you understand. I have my work so near to its conclusion now that I will never finish it. The grass is at the door, is on the stairs is in the room my mouth is me while i mark off the days and think how blessed i am to have my work to tend the graveyard i become
1: hello and welcome to the latest episode of the scottish porch libraries podcast series my name's colin waters and i'll be your host for the next half hour it's pleasure and an honour this time to introduce Sean O'Brien, one of only two poets, John Burnside being another, who has won the T.S. Eliot and Forward Prizes for the same collection. That collection for O'Brien was 2007's The Drowned Book. And as celebrated as that book rightly is, the staff of the SBL understandably prefer 2015's The Beautiful Librarians for the title alone. O'Brien was born in 1952 in London, although he grew up in Hull, and has, since 1990, lived in Newcastle, where he teaches at the university. In addition to writing poetry, he's also a critic, playwright, and broadcaster. Earlier this year, he published his latest collection, Europa on Picador. He came to the SPL March to read, and while here, he kindly consented to recording the podcast you're listening to. I began by asking him about publishing a collection titled
0: Europa in the era of Brexit. The poems in the book, the new collection, Europa, were written between the spring of 2015 and the end of 2017, and they were written in a period of developing crisis. The 2015 general election, and then the, uh, the Brexit vote, and the reemergence in more or less polite form of uh, fascism, in a number of European countries, including the one south of the border here. In a sense of, of crisis and wanting... My sense was that I wanted to write about this, not to write about it head-on, but to deal with it as the imagination found ways of entering the material, either narratively or historically uh, or mysteriously.
1: I, I really enjoyed it and one of the poems I liked was The Chase and I liked the last lines of it Too bored to laugh, too cry, tired to cry, you think these people did not matter Then you do, yeah, that's quite a nice summation or analysis of how people maybe regarded the folk who ended up voting for Brexit
0: Yes, there was a time when we could have consigned the Brexit's UKIP and worse than UKIP attitudes to to the possession of an insignificant minority. Uh, But something has made that kind of opinion half respectable. And um, one of the explanations offered for the results of Brexit was that a proportion of the white working class and, I guess, the white lower middle class felt neglected, left behind uncared for and so on. Um, And I suppose what's happened is in a sense their revenge, although they can't really have thought what the result of it was going to be.
1: Yeah, because a lot of the regions, to rehearse the usual thing, people say at this point a lot of the regions that voted en masse for, for Brexit are also regions that have benefited from EU funding.
0: Indeed, yes. I feel European, I guess I have done all my adult life one way or another and Mm. travelled in Europe a lot, worked in Europe, interested in European history, literature, music, arts, cuisine, landscape, I don't see how you can conceivably be separate from it except as a kind of a lie of the mind. It's kind of like toxic nostalgia isn't it in in the UK? It's an interesting way of putting it that people want something that never existed, Um, it's understandable, you know, it's comforting. But I I was trying to imagine who really thinks like this, and I was given this this image was given to me somehow uh, of uh, a couple of old people uh, lying propped up in their coffins, full of Marmite, reading back copies of the Daily Express. It was a kind of one of the sensibilities that goes towards that kind of attitude.
1: Kind of horror movie image, isn't it? <laughs> I always just think of someone sitting on a branch and so sawing the branch. I suppose so, yeah,
0: yeah. Anyway, we shall see. Yeah, but, uh, it doesn't look good.
1: So th- I, I wonder if I could tease out about your own sense of u- Europeanness. Um, so this is something that I guess you started to feel in your teenage years, once you started to become a sort of cultural, artistic person? Did the two go hand in hand?
0: Well, the literature that's... Um, that I read, and I wasn't necessarily very aware of this feeling at the time, you know, but getting interested in bits of German literature and bits of French literature and gradually developing an idea of the place and also reading history of school. We did a certain amount of European history. So it felt immediate, you know, we had very good teachers, mm. so that, you know, the Italian process of reunification in the 19th century was very 3D experience for us being taught by Dr. Finlay, head of history. And then the opportunity arose, you know, when I was publishing, after I published a bit, I got invited to go to places in Europe and we also went under our own steam and had a chance to go to places I'd always imagined and never expected to get to, like Lithuania or um, Republika Srpska, the mm-hmm. Serbian enclave in Bosnia-Herzegovina which give you an idea of, on one hand, what what seems to have happened after history, and on the other, a sense of what might be about to happen.
1: The blurb of the book makes the interesting point that you can't really leave Europe. It's a, it's a delusion to think you can leave Europe in any, any real sense, and yet we're doing it, and, and at some considerable cost to ourselves as well, I think.
0: I would entirely agree. I'm reminded of the old joke, the old newspaper headline that says, Fog in Channel, Continent Isolated. It's... Uh... <laughs> The late Peter Porter, the great Australian poet who lived in London for many years, wrote a poem called The Last of England about the picture, the Ford Maddox Brown picture of an emigrant ship and uh, on its way to Australia, at least I think it was. And uh, he said, you cannot leave England, it turns a planet in the mind. And I think the same holds true on a grander scale of Europe. And one of Porter's most intriguing and mysterious poems is actually called Europe and it's an attempt to evoke the continent its history its culture its conflicts and so on
1: for anyone who hasn't read this it's not as if the collection it's like forty poems all about how brilliant it is to live in Europe and how By silly no means, no. how silly we are to, to to leave the eu it's a it's a collection of poems which doesn't flinch from historical uh, what would you say atrocities offenses uh and, and connects the past with the present I think as well. Is that a fair summation of how you, you, you sort of set the geography of the map of your collection, I guess?
0: Absolutely, yes, I think that's, that's a very fair description of what I I think I've ended up trying to do. That, you know, the horrors of Europe, the terrors of Europe are inextricably parts. of its history and its successes and glories are cousin mm-hmm. to those terrible events. And often grow out of the soil on which those events happened. There's a, a sense of just kind of teeming life and conflict and multiplicity. All those cities, how many cities, you know, great medieval and mm. Renaissance and Reformation cities are there in Europe? Hundreds. It's, it's an extraordinary place.
1: One of the things when I was reading it, um, it's just the echoes and the rhymes, you know, as in. There's a great moment, I think it's the poem about Berlin, where you see mice, like toys, mm. and they're, they're just toys, they're like soft toys, but they're being hung by the neck, yeah. and immediately you just have like a sort of a flashback to, I guess it was the Nazi years? Yes. Is that, that's, that's a state of mind, isn't it? I mean, you know, if everything was, was great and fine, you wouldn't necessarily, even in Berlin, be thinking of, of the worst thing you could think of in that, that situation. Mm.
0: No, I mean the the actual background and experience to that poem, I mean The poem is a fictionalisation, which includes some things that actually took place. Um, but as it happened, um, half a dozen poets all went to Berlin, and the late Helen Dunmore and I went and walked into East Berlin around there. And on another day, Kathleen Jamie and I went to visit the Plötzensee prison, mm. where among other people, members of the July plot against Hitler were executed with piano wire.
1: Is it von Stauffenberg? Yeah, Stauffenberg
0: like was dead or? by then, but there were others. Uh, and this is a place where they were still killing people, even when the Russians were at the doors, you know. So it was a pretty terrible place, even though it's, muse- it's a museum, and it's clean and light and all the rest of It, it is a place of horror. And then, this, I found this pretty shocking. And we went back to the hotel. And just around the corner was a toy shop, I'll buy something for Isabel, my friend's daughter, and I went in this shop and there's all these mice hanging from the ceiling by little plastic threads, you know, mm. because it's a convenient way to store them, you know, and it it makes good use of space, you know, mm. but you couldn't help seeing a comparison which evokes something about that kind of sinister thing somewhere at the center of Europe of the way in which fairy tales turn into horror stories. Yeah. Things which seem playful and innocent go very dark at some point. Mm. You know, I was aware of that a lot in various places I visited.
1: I don't know why I didn't think of this until right now when you're talking, about there's a graphic novel, Mouse as well, which mm. also, um, I mean, you know, Nazis did try to rob people of their humanity by referring to them as vermin and and other things like that. So I guess if you're in Berlin and you're seeing mice hung by the neck round a corner from a famous zone of Nazi horror, uh, maybe it's a bit more apparent than than I was thinking originally.
0: I didn't think, at the time, You know, I, I noted this down, but I couldn't find a way of incorporating it into any poem I was writing at the time, it seemed a bit too insistent. And eventually I decided, well I'll just say it and I'll frame it with the reservations I had about it at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I love Berlin. Me at too. Yes. I love Berlin. <laughs> that's a wonderful
1: place. <laughs> I mean it's great just to spend some time there and, you know, you can do the Nazi stuff, you can do the tour of the history, yeah. or you can just you can hang out a bit, I suppose. I guess that's the sort of um, one of the dichotomies you explore in the book as well, you know, that um, it's a, a place of great horror but a great place a great loaded word civilization mm. as well one of the things that's interesting uh, you've mentioned fascism already and the word appears several times in the collection and it's it's a subject that you've looked at before you did a play called Keeper of the Flame I think it was and that was about uh, the English sort of brand of, of fascism as occurred in the 1930s mm. did that play come out in 1989 or around the 80s start of the 90s uh,
0: it would have been 2003, oh God,
1: 2003. one way out of um, no. the times. Of, but regardless, it was about a chap looking back on the 1930s, back and forth. When you were writing that play and thinking about historical fascism, did, did you make the assumption, like myself perhaps, that it was, a, you know, apart from one or two outbursts here and again by residivists, that fascism was essentially a a, a historical... um, No,
0: I didn't. No, I didn't. I, I felt that it had been making its presence felt, especially in former East Germany, after the war came down, and in the National Front in France, and whatever nonsensical, awful political parties mustered themselves in the UK. uh, I didn't think it was a historical thing, I thought it was a threat and it seems that that was the case. Mm. Um, I was interested in the idea that in the 30s, nearly all the poets of any repute writing in English were of the left to one extent or another. Mm. The only one who's any significance who wasn't really is Roy Campbell, a South African poet. Who satirised all the others? I was interesting, the idea what if you had actually somebody who's a fairly major poet who'd gone to the right as a kind of visionary patriot and become involved with a Mosleyite party? That was what it was about. Mm-hmm. The theme crops up, it's something I don't seem to be able to leave it alone. My second novel, Once Again Assembled Here, it came out in 2016, is set in a, a school in 1968 when there's a mock election at the same time as there's a significant by-election going on in the in the city outside the school where a fascist candidate is standing who's an old boy so there's a mock election in the school and the real thing happening the real thing happening outside you know Uh, no it's it haunts me i think it's got something to do with the fact that um i'm told that a member of my family was one of the first people into Belsen and never recovered from the experience you know as a soldier and also when i was very young my father took me to see a documentary film about nazism which many people would have thought it was irresponsible of him to have done so but it left an indelible impression on my imagination you know? so, mm, mm. and when i see it coming you know i um, well we've read and seen you know and visited we know what it's like it's a, it's a death cult you know, disguised mm. as catholicism or disguised as a sort of socialism you know, it's a death cult.
1: Well, as I often say at this point, we've seen this movie and we know how it ends. Why are people continuing <laughs> well, with this?
0: Well, people love a remake.
1: Yeah. <laughs> this is a reboot, is it? Boot. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, a rejack boot. A rejack boot. Thank you. That's uh, the right way to put it. Um, I mean, as a result, I think—correct me if I'm wrong—this collection feels more sombre than your past collections. It feels. Um, there's a bit of a, a darker cloud over
0: it. Well, yeah, I don't think anybody described the predecessors as being particularly a barrel Lared. of laughs but, <laughs>, laughs. but no, this one is definitely pretty um, pretty somber throughout. I mean there's there's one comic poem in the whole thing. I mean, one relatively light hearted comic poem, the rest of it is fairly sober in its contemplation of things. Completists for R L. Somebody has to remember the OK band with five good songs and two LPs. By accident, we saw them live one night on a short autumn tour of Seaside Toilets. Somebody had to, and that would be us. They were outside afterwards smoking a joint in the lee of the van. We approached for a word. The balding lead guitarist didn't want to share, and the drummer delivered a harrowing talk on the high cost of touring he's dead now. They were good though, good for 30 people, for opening with new material we sensed would never be recorded. We know their name, how they never sold out, how the walls of the dump fell away, and for an hour it was beyond dispute that art is all there is and might not be enough. Uh, I'm interested in bands and music
1: myself. Uh, And there's a number of surprising musical Re- music surprises me, I know, musical references in there. I mean I noticed you put swastika eyes, the primal scream song in yeah, a couple of times. It's a hell of a song. Great song. The military <laughs> industrial illusion of um, the democracy.
0: Industrial illusion of democracy. I
1: mean you don't often hear that in pop hits or anything. Remix by the chemical
0: brothers or that. Completists as it happens is dedicated to Roddy Lumsden, mm. who himself is an aficionado of all kinds of pop music uh, knows a great deal about it. Well, knows a great deal about a lot of things, yeah. You know, but, but you know, it's not based on any particular gig, but we've all been to these places where people we had an interest in were doing what you could tell was their last tour, you know, because nobody except you and your friend had bought their record, yeah. You know, so.
1: Yeah, you've continued beyond that moment of um, passion into loyalty.
0: Yes. My taste is. Very scattered, and I realised at one point in the mid nineteen eighties that I was buying the New Musical Express, and I wasn't interested in most of what was in it. Yeah. You know? And then I just began to listen to what what came my way, rather than trying to remain informed about it.
1: Yeah, that's my attitude. If it's good enough, I'll hear it.
0: Yeah, but I just, you know, I got too old. Um, but the greatest rock band of all time, cool. you'd like me to tell you, yes, there, <laughs> is the Only Ones.
1: Really? Yeah. Wow! Yeah. Another girl on another planet. So one, the only ones that people uh, know is that one.
0: Yeah. Well, if you listen to the Beast or the Big Sleep, they really are. Are those the names of their albums? Or no, the songs off uh, the Beast is on the first one, which is called the Only Ones. The Big Sleep is off the third one, Baby's Got a Gun. I'll track it down and I'll buy it. I won't stream it. I'll buy it. But um, I s- they reformed about 10 years ago. And Peter Perrett, the lead singer, had been a junkie for about 30 years. And he looked it. But he was terrific. He really was. You know, and the whole band were magnificent. You know. Really rich, detailed, passionate, dramatic, you know, lyrical music. And uh, and he put out a solo album last year, I think it was, which is pretty good.
1: How does... Um you know the music you're interested in. Does that feed into your work in any way? You know, in terms of, I mean, I know there's one or two references from actual lyrics yeah. um, in, in 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 Europa's prose, but is there a, a sort of wider way, a wider influence, a more long-lived influence for the music you're interested in, how it works into your your poetry? Uh,
0: I'm not sure at the level of texture whether it does or not, I couldn't I couldn't tell you, you know, but. Sometimes our subject matter, I mean, early poems, I wrote about Lowell George mm. I mean, of Little Feet, the leader, the band leader of Little Feet, you know. and um, and at one time I had a poem which had a quote from Johnny Thunders.
1: Mm. The great Johnny Thunders, the late <laughs> Johnny Thunders.
0: <laughs> I just thought it was brilliant and it was a poem in itself. It said, what do we sing about life and death, girls and cars? Magnificent, <laughs> concise. <laughs>
1: And that concludes another episode uh, In SPL's podcast series Uh, Some thank yous before I go as usual So uh, thank you to Sean O'Brien For um, sharing his time with us uh, Coming to the SPL And reading uh, from his uh, latest collection Europa And uh, talking to us in the podcast series Uh, thanks too to you dear listener for tuning in again and thanks to my friend Will Campbell who recorded the music that you hear at the start of the show and at the end um, if you're interested in the, the doings of the SPL, you can always check out our website, which uh, can be found at We also, of course, do the social media thing, so our Twitter handle is Leaves We have a Facebook page, of course, who doesn't? And uh, we have an Instagram page too, and I think the handle for that one is SPLScotland. We'll be back again hopefully in a month's time. Um, uh, So until such time, I shall bid you the fondest of adieus and we'll play out with one last poem by Sean
0: O'Brien. The Chase. Hell might have a function room like this where gravy fights it out with harpick. A mock Tudor Midland roadhouse, 30s built to meet the passing trade long since diverted down the bypass it fell on hard times then on harder ones and kept on falling through false floors down shafts of optimistic anaglypta, past the cheap and cheerful weddings underbooked conventions lingerie events and charismatic preachers braving out the years god turned his face away the old place stands in hawthorn scrub beside the nibbled chase its car park dogged by doggers it must long for arson what it gets are damaged veterans, and others of uncertain provenance, would be Werwolfs left behind to serve the cause from bunkers dug beneath allotments, their St. George's flags announce our Ingerland no more. There will be those who speak who bring fraternal greetings from our Flemish friends, and those who listen with a hope so long deferred it is immortal. What began one pale late summer evening here will end when darkness brings instructions to prepare for the eternal soon, the er time worshipped in the true theology where things are otherwise. But in the meantime, minutes must be taken, grist to the banal resentments, nudges, localised atrocities as omens of the greater cause, and let no one forget that there are windows to be licked and public discourse to be joined, until, on average, 18 seconds in, the calls cut off at Radio Chase. Where the middle where the Midlands is again. These are the relatives you never see now since your parents' generation died. You do remember, yes, the awkwardness, a funeral tea held somewhere like the Chase that might have even been the Chase, a fly blown nowhere, birches, ponds, with HGVs parked up in lay-bys full of rubbish, and a sense that, give or take, this could be any time since 1931. And someone's husband joining you outside to smoke, assuming you'd agree with his shy, smiling bigotry about our friends from the subcontinent. You can't remember what you said. You can, and it was nothing while he stood his ground there in the car park, and if he sensed that you were clenching with embarrassment, you couldn't tell. He'd made his point, while you declared you'd better make a start, and he advised what roads you should avoid, and never blinked, while here, in hindsight, you're still blinking at the shame of it, when accident has brought you back down these unfashionable routes, and then contrived the need to stop and get a sandwich. Sunday afternoon, in Albion's excluded middle. The meeting is concluding on the far side of the corridor. The literature is all there at the back, beside the runes and ornamental daggers that make lovely gifts. To say it takes all sorts may be a fallacy, but here they are, and here you are again. The sandwich comes. You watch them load their tat and nonsense back into the knacker's van. You are confused by a persistent disbelief that this can be the case, this levee of pujadists dawdling by their cars till those with homes to go to go there and those with holes hole up to count the days till their black sun rises on this honest plain of midland ash and spoil and their inheritance is saved from everyone including you too bored to laugh too tired to cry you think these people do not matter then they do downloading this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.